0: at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. It's
1: not just inequality of wealth. It is not just inequality of income, which is big. It's also inequality in terms of the geographical clustering of different strata of the population of different people. It's inequality in life experiences. It's inequality in treatments. People felt mistreated by those in the upper echelons of society. So it's not just money, it's also access to public goods, to certain spaces in the city, to education, unemployment benefits, and all sorts of things, but also treatment.
0: Welcome to the Democracy Paradox podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the Democracy Paradox. The first step populist leaders in Venezuela, Hungary, and Turkey took to dismantle their democracies was to rewrite their constitutions. They centralized authority in the executive and weakened institutions like the courts and the legislature. So, Anytime leaders in a democracy propose a new constitution, I find skepticism is not only natural, but also healthy. Despite these concerns though, many democracy advocates and scholars view the upcoming constitutional convention in Chile differently. So naturally, I wanted to understand why Chile was different. So I reached out to Aldo Madariaga. Aldo Is a professor of political science at Universidad Diego Portales and an associate researcher at the Center for Social Conflict and Cohesion Studies, C O E S. He's also the author of Neoliberal Resilience Lessons in Democracy and Development from Latin America and Eastern Europe. Many of my conversations on this podcast have tackled the challenges democracy faces from populism. But Aldo convinces me, neoliberalism is an obstacle many democracies must also overcome. Some have viewed neoliberalism as the antithesis of populism. But this doesn't mean it's democratic. Aldo explains how neoliberalism goes beyond economics to become a political project hostile to democracy. So before we start, I, I do want to be clear. The left does not have a monopoly on democracy. People really can believe in both free markets and democracy at the same time. But Aldo shows how neoliberalism in Chile and many other countries went beyond economic policies to define its politics. But whether you agree or disagree, I want you to share your thoughts. So leave a comment at democracyparadox.com, where you will find a full transcript of the episode. I also want to share some appreciation and thanks to Mills Jordan, who's begun helping me design a page for the podcast on Instagram. If you'd also like to help the podcast in your own way, please email me at jkemph at But for now, this is my conversation with Aldo Madariaga. Aldo Madariaga, welcome to The Democracy Paradox. Thanks to you, Justin, for inviting me. Well, Aldo, hey, your book... Neoliberal resilience makes such a sophisticated theoretical argument. It explains how neoliberalism leaves significant democratic deficits. Perhaps the strongest example for me, though, is Chile, where protests in 2019 broke out over a modest fare increase. So let's start there, because this example gives life to many of the ideas in your book. Why did Chilean protests over a fair increase of just 30 pesos lead to demands for an entirely new constitution?
1: So it's one of those small events that then lead up to major changes. It's unpredictable. It's completely a game changer. And perhaps the best way of summarizing that is the motto that emerged from that, because people were wondering why 30 pesos which is really, I mean, the exchange rate is 700 pesos is $1. So 30 pesos is really small. I mean, it it means nothing, literally nothing. You cannot buy a candy with 30 pesos. But the motto that emerged from that, because people were wondering, you know, everyone's crazy. This riot's because of 30 pesos. And, And the motto is, no, it's not about 30 pesos. It's about 30 years. So in a way, that's the final drop in a series of events, of phenomena, of trends, of happenings that, in a way, people said, enough, enough is enough. We don't care if it's 30 pesos, it's just the accumulation of things for over 30 years. We're talking about 30 years of democratic life after the Pinochet dictatorship, but neoliberalism was implemented at the beginning of Pinochet dictatorship, which lasted 17 years. So in a way, it's 50 years all in all, with 30 comprising democratic governments following those premises established by Pinochet under uh, his dictatorship. And it's in a way a reaction to the sensation that this was a successful country, that everything was perfect, that the statistics, when you look at them, And compared to other neighboring countries, they just show a successful country in many different areas, a type of success that has been slowing down in the last couple of years, but nevertheless, extremely successful. By all means, you want to measure it. And an elite that was too complacent with those estimates, with those numbers, that was not able to hear nor experience everyday life as ordinary citizens did. There were scattered voices that said, look, it's different in the ordinary lives of ordinary people. They feel it differently. They don't get those numbers in their real lives. And Alida was saying, no, that's not possible because numbers say otherwise. A common interpretation was it's the discontent with, with abundance. I mean, when you have abundance, you have rapid growth periods and then growth slows down. Then people get used to having money, having higher incomes, and then once it's not growing as fast, then they're discontent. And so all sorts of explanations related to the success of the country instead of really hearing what the people were saying. So it's 30 years, not 30 pesos. It's really establishing, look, we've been saying this all this time, and you don't want to hear it. And the extent, the violence and, and the reach of this throughout all the country of these riots that followed the 30 pesos increase was just unheard of. In these 30 years of democracy, they produced the largest demonstrations in decades. I was born during the dictatorship in a year where there were huge demonstrations against the dictatorship. And these protests brought more people to the streets than the protesters that were trying to topple the dictator. So In a way, this was really a watershed moment for for Chilean politics.
0: So when you say the economic figures did not tell the whole story, they didn't explain the way life was like for the average Chilean, can you help us understand, give us a portrait of what life is like for the average Chilean or for most Chileans who feel that the neoliberal policies have not worked for them?
1: The main thing here is inequality. And this is a topic that had been, as a social problem, growing for some time. It's not just inequality of wealth. It is not just inequality of income, which is big. It's also inequality in terms of the geographical clustering of different strata of the population, of different people. It's inequality in life experiences. It's inequality in treatments. People felt mistreated by those in the upper echelons of society. So it's not just money, it's also access to public goods, to certain spaces in the city, to education, unemployment benefits and all sorts of things, but also treatment, treating each other as equals, feeling privileged, not just because of these socioeconomic things, but also feeling superior in social relations in everyday life. For these people claiming they want another Situation another country, a a different treatment. It's basically having to work very hard for what they want. And this is closely related to our story about neoliberalism because when labor markets are extremely fluid and you fall into unemployment over and over, when you have lower life chances because your education is an education for the poor because it's so segregated and so unequal, the access to good education partly because of the liberalisation and privatisation of it so the life chances are marked by systematically unequal access to quality benefits services etc
0: so aldo i like how you have already introduced an idea that i found fascinating within your book the fact that neoliberalism is not just about economic policies it encapsulates many different facets that are both political and social within people's lives. And there's a quote in your book where you write, neoliberalism survived in its purest form in those countries where it was protected from democracy. It's this idea that neoliberalism is not just an economic philosophy about limited government and free trade, but it goes beyond that. So can you help explain how is neoliberalism more than
1: just a philosophy
0: of economic policy?
1: I think neoliberals understood that the implementation of markets everywhere, you know of competition would undermine basic economic securities. This was expected the implementation of markets where there were protected firms would lead to widespread bankruptcy, the privatization of social services, the reduction of social benefits like unemployment benefits for example or pension benefits etc would lead to differences in access would lead to people unemployed for longer times or falling incomes so they understood that this would have political effects in my book i deal with countries in eastern europe and when these countries were transitioning to a market economy to capitalism when they were transitioning it was very clear when you read all the books about the people they were thinking about these processes. It was very clear that everyone was completely clear that this would bring major dislocations for firms, for people in general. But they believed that in the longer term, markets would bring overall benefits. And the key question was that if markets bring these dislocations in the short term, how do we shield? politics from those that are left behind because of course if they feel worse off if they feel that these policies are affecting them then they will react politically how do we shield politics from this expected reaction now in that context it was expected that the sort of counter reaction of those left behind of those affected would be short and in the end market economies or neoliberal economies would end up bringing more benefits than problems. So the political shielding had to be short-lived because eventually economies would do the rest. But in the end, what you see is that the shielding of democracy continued over time because over and over people were subject to different types of dislocations. Constant economic crisis, both nationally speaking, but also in their own lives. Long periods of unemployment, going in and out of the labor market, uh, you know, having somebody ill in your family. If the health system is privatized and you cannot afford it, you know, having uh, somebody ill in your family means you fall into poverty. You're not insured against those things that happen often. So in the end, that shielding from the political consequences of the dislocations of neoliberalism, had to be there for a longer time. And when you go back to the writings of some of the people in the circles of these new doctrines that started to gain more prominence in the post-war period, a group of them was very interested and developed specific thoughts about precisely how to shield market reforms from the possibility that those affected by them, and they thought that there would be many affected, from the possibility that those will use basic democratic mechanisms to overrun, to change neoliberalism in the way they would want. So I always
0: find it interesting when I read some of the literature of neoliberalism, because it makes a case that in order to have democracy, we need to have these types of freedoms. These basic economic liberties need to be in place in order for democracy to be able to function. And you give a great account of the history of neoliberal thought, where you walk through some of those ideas. But I, I went back to a piece by Frederick Hayek, his most famous throughout the Road to Serfdom, and I found a quote where he wrote, "We have no intention." however of making a fetish of democracy it may well be true that our generation talks and thinks too much of democracy and too little of the values which it serves and i think this really gets at the point that the whole neoliberal project isn't really about democracy at the end it's doing exactly like you just mentioned it's always been concerned more about shielding their economic ideas from democracy, rather than ever
1: actually bringing democracy about. Absolutely. That's completely right. I mean, if you go back to those texts by Hayek, by James Buchanan, which is another key figure, I mean, one of the key things that they were struggling against was precisely the type of post-war compromise between capitalism and democracy, which meant basically that capitalism was embedded, was surrounded by a series of institutions, reducing the possibilities of companies for seeking profits in the way they wanted. There were labor unions establishing limits to that, regulations for redistribution, for taxation. More generally, there was a political system in which the voices of the many were heard, capital was taxed, and this was used for redistribution over the board in in different ways. It was a compromise in which the idea was that for the survival of capitalism, you need to limit it because unfettered competition, unfettered profit seeking is bad for society. What neoliberals want is to undo those tethers, to have precisely the type of unlimited competition, unlimited profit seeking. And they were targeting specifically the type of post-war compromise and the democratic mechanisms ingrained in that. Redistribution, taxation, labor power, and the capacity of democratic governments to represent the masses. So neoliberals were thinking how to shield capitalism in a way that democracy did not interfere with the profit motives of the companies. So there's an assumption
0: among most people, that neoliberalism reduces the role of the state, that it allows a broad sense of economic freedom because the state is shrunk to something that's very small and has a very minimal role for the state. But you dispel that myth in your book. You write, neoliberalism does not preclude state intervention and often requires it. So, Aldo, what do neoliberals expect from the
1: state? The only way to implement these market societies, this unfettered competition, this unfettered profit-seeking, was to use the state to implement that and to enforce that over time. And you see it in practice everywhere where neoliberalism was established in its most thorough forms as in South America, as in Chile, for example. I mean, bloody dictatorships. It's implementing markets and freedom by repressing those that are against it. If you see in Eastern Europe, you see a period of complete confusion when communism crumbles, and political leaders that use all sorts of ways to shield themselves from popular pressures to rapidly pass many reforms that will have a a long-term effect on those countries, in that period of confusion, in that period of of extreme sort of fluidity, but even, you know, making this explicit, shielding the reformers from the pressures from below, from the pressures of those suffering the changes of, of this, you know, transition from communism to capitalism. But more generally, when you see everywhere where neoliberalism is established and takes hold Usually, strong executives against more representative parliaments, special orders or special decrees, and these type of things. So in a way, the state is crucial for establishing, let alone maintaining neoliberal policies or even principles over time. If you think more specifically about markets, markets don't regulate themselves. Everywhere in the world, when you have good functioning markets, you need the state to regulate. So, in a way, states are crucial in different ways for, for neoliberalism to function. So,
0: although I'm in the United States, and there's a lot of conversations about the effects of neoliberalism, the role of the United States with neoliberalism in my country. But as a Chilean, you see neoliberalism very differently, and you're right about it in the book, how there's a difference between how neoliberalism is approached in the West versus Latin America or Eastern Europe. Can you help explain how neoliberalism was implemented differently in a country like Chile or a country like Estonia, like you read in the book, as opposed to more developed countries within the West?
1: In certain countries in the developing world, there was a moment in which politics were extremely fluid. And this meant that this type of very grand design project or grand project for society, uh, neoliberalism, could be established in a more thorough way. So in Latin America, the 70s and 80s are particularly tumultuous, very rapid change. The previous political regimes were in extreme dire problems. It was mostly economic problems, but this implied a very complicated political situation as well. And in some countries, there were outright military dictatorships. So this specific juncture where politics and economic, and the economy was in flux was propitious for establishing this very thorough societal project. The same happened in Eastern Europe. There were countries that did not make the sort of leap from communism to capitalism right away in the early 1990s, but those that did, This was an opening window into the unknown. So the economy was changing fast. Politics was changing fast. The old regime was crumbling. And a famous Polish finance minister in 89 who, who passed all the neoliberal reforms thought of this as a window of opportunity. We have to use this window of opportunity to pass all these reforms quickly. Otherwise, there will be normal politics. Normal times will come back. And then it will be much more difficult because we know that these are difficult things to swallow because they produce complicated bad effects on, on many people. And so, in many countries in the West, did not have this type of window of opportunity. So, there are many, many people that have studied this, and I concentrate on developing countries, but they study the small, gradual introduction of neoliberal policies in different realms, different policy domains, you know with more success here with less success there but basically in a period of normal politics of normal times when you don't have this window of opportunity and so those affected by it have the chance to to say something about it, to oppose it and therefore the politics of those reforms are qualitatively different than when you have a situation where both economic and political reforms associated with neoliberalism are passed in one or a few strokes.
0: Well, let's get a little bit specific. I'm familiar with how Chile privatized social security early on. It was oftentimes used as a template for think tanks like the Cato Institute or the Heritage Foundation to be able to look to ways to be able to privatize social security within the United States. Can you introduce some other reforms and how they were protected from democratic reform?
1: This was a dictatorship with extreme levels of repression of opponents. I mean, all sorts of opponents. So basically, you didn't have to worry about that backlash.
0: But how are they locked in today? Because it's one thing to implement a neoliberal reform during the Pinochet regime, but we're looking at 30 years later where these policies still exist today. And not only do they exist, but rather than just electing new leaders rather than just passing new laws and policies, they found it necessary to write an entirely new constitution to be able to change the economic structure of their country, even slightly change the economic structure of their country.
1: Precisely because this period was so extraordinary in terms of the conditions it it gave to these people wanting to to produce this change they were able to sort of pursue in its more radical reach this idea of shielding neoliberalism from democratic politics. And so they thought, OK, once we go back to democracy and eventually they thought this could happen, you know, with great probability, those that have opposed this and we have been able to repress them will come back and say, hey, we don't want this. Eventually they will look for votes, they will get elected and they will reverse. It. What can we do to prevent that? So what they did in practice, for example, for congressional elections, you usually have districts that elect a certain amount of representatives. And then according to a formula, whether it's majoritarian or more proportional, they go to parliament. And usually parliaments more or less represent the votes in the population. So what they did here is is they sort of designed a way so that the expression of that, of votes, would lead to a tie in parliament or a majority of right-wing politicians in parliament. Basically, the right had one-third of the vote historically, and they made it so as to have 50% of the representation in parliament. Therefore, even though the right was still having 30% of the votes, they were having 50% of Congress. The other thing they say, certain laws, certain key aspects of this architecture We will say, no, you you need more than 50%, at least two-thirds for changing them. So it's absolutely impossible to reach with these rules. But even then, I mean, if they manage to get more than 50% and maybe reach those thresholds, in addition, we will nominate around a fifth or 20% of the Senate of unelected senators. Who will elect those senators? Well, the armed forces. And then they put their allies in the Supreme Court. So basically, they reduced the expression of the popular vote in parliament, so it was absolutely impossible to change the economic model.
0: So what you're saying is, in terms of the electoral system, they devised a model that would favor their supporters so that they would receive more seats than the actual number of votes that they actually got. To start with so they're playing with rig system right off the bat then after that they locked in policies with the constitution so that you needed super majorities that would make it even more difficult to overcome to be able to have the votes because they'd almost have a veto within congress and then finally within the second chamber they included non-elected members that were likely to favor their policies that would then be an additional group that would be added to the support that they already received so that they could likely defeat any policy proposal within the Senate if it happened to pass the other chamber. So they've got at least three different levels of manipulation that they stacked the deck with to be able to make sure that if any reforms come to the table, that they at least have a way to influence it, if not outright veto it.
1: Yeah, precisely how you said it, and you said it very well. The funny thing is that this all could sort of be justified, because this isn't completely outrageous in comparative terms. There are constitutions, there are electoral systems that do this. They do this to boost the representation of minorities minorities that have been historically excluded from the political system and that will never reach the type of influence in politics, they use some of these mechanisms to increase their voice, recognize their status as minorities and include them in the political system. This is completely different as having a appropriated class, powerful, wealthy, redoing, reshaping, rewriting all the rules of the country under a dictatorship, and then giving themselves extraordinary powers to veto any attempt to change those rules that they had written. It's completely different. And you can see in different experiences of thorough, systematic, neoliberal experiments, different examples of this type of thinking, of this type of manipulation, to favor those that want neoliberalism to stay over time, to favor the representation of those and limit the representation of those that will most likely
0: want to change it. And we're talking about Chile specifically right now, but I do want to emphasize that this is not exclusive to Chile. Your book obviously talks about Latin America and compares it against Eastern Europe, but this is something that we see in lots of places around the world. James Loxton noted in an article called Authoritarian Vestiges in Democracies, he wrote, authoritarian era constitutions are the rule, not the exception. So when we're looking at Chile having a constitution that was written for them to govern as a democracy, but written by the former regime that was a military dictatorship, other countries are facing similar issues like this. And it's one of the reasons why we see neoliberalism, not just in Latin America and Eastern Europe, but in different pockets around
1: the globe. That's right. That's right. I think one of the things that the book shows is that this is not an idiosyncratic thing associated with Pinochet and its figures and some specific characteristics, which it has. I mean, that process has specific characteristics, but what I try to connect with the original thinking of these people, of neoliberals, of the great thinkers of neoliberalism, that they were concerned and they were trying to develop precisely this type of things. This is a mechanism that you can start looking at in different contexts. So, Aldo, some people would accept your
0: premise that neoliberalism does have democratic deficits, but they would counter by saying that it's a trade-off. You can either have greater amount of democracy or you can have greater economic performance. So I want to just ask you the question point blank. Has neoliberalism
1: delivered strong economic performance? That's a good question. I think if you see, for example, overall, if you see the world economy, there has been an overall process of liberalization. Growth rates have been diminishing constantly since the 1960s, 1970s onwards. Today, the great problem in all the world, and especially in the advanced capitalist countries and the developed countries, is growth. They're not growing. And growth is anemic. There are several books written about this and the huge package of monetary and fiscal policy in the U.S. is because of this, not just because of COVID, but it comes from before this. The U.S. is not growing. And Japan isn't, and Germany isn't. And many people relate this to the liberalization of these accounts. So this one thing. In the specific case of Chile, for example, or Estonia in Eastern Europe, there has been a very rapid period of growth, periods of growth, followed by periods of more stagnation. And when people sympathetic to neoliberalism say, look, the problem in Chile is actually that we lost track of growth, but it's not that we have to change everything altogether. It's just go back to that gold period of growth under neoliberalism. That's the way to go. What you can say to that is, look, if you liberalize everything and and allow firms to make profits the way they want without regulations, They must probably be a period of rapid growth, but this will hit a ceiling. And it's not just an economic ceiling, it is a social ceiling, it is an environmental ceiling. It's precisely the type of limit that you get at when you have unfettered competition and unfettered profit seeking. And this is precisely what has been expressing in Chile for a long time. And that sort of exploded with this massive protest during 2019 is precisely the fact that, look, we cannot keep going with this model because it essentially is not good for the people. It's not good for nature. I mean, it's a model that is extremely polluting. When you have no rules and no regulations, you start affecting not just the social, but also the environment. And so the answer to that is there have been periods in which in specific countries, Have growth a lot, but this has a structural limit into how much you can grow without caring for the social consequences or environmental consequences of that growth. So what I
0: liked about your book was it didn't just argue that neoliberalism locks in its policies because of structural features like a constitution. You actually argue that it reshapes the political landscape itself. How does the influence of different political interests change as neoliberal policies
1: become enacted? That's a very interesting question. When you're used to play a game in which you have different rules, and you know how you can kick the ball, you can make goals, what counts as a goal or not, you get used to that. When the rules change and you have, let's say, the field is reduced, you have different shapes of the goals, they're not square. Now they're round or whatever. And now you can play with the hand. When the rules change, the players also change their behavior because they have to play with different. Maybe they don't like the new rule, but eventually they learn how to play. Once you liberalize, privatize, for example, social security, once you have the chance to, to choose the school you send your children to, you may want changes knowing that this is basically a a very unequal system and you don't have the chance to send your child to a good school because you don't have the money. But you get used to choosing. And this is very difficult to change in people's minds because after 30 years of knowing that it is your right to select the school you send your children to, even if they tell you, look, they give you the chance, look, I will give you a better school but this will be by default. You cannot choose. People feel that they want to keep their freedom to choose. They they want both things. So if they tell you, look, this will be a a school without religious education, for example, but it will be a good school. They will say, no, I want a good school, but I want to choose whether it has religious education or not. Well, these type of things, after 30 or more years of telling people you have the chance to choose, if you have Bad conditions, if economically you don't go well, that's because of you, that's your fault. You have all sorts of different decisions at your disposition. If you don't make the right decisions, because the system works like this, then it's your fault. Then you you get this ingrained and you learn how to play in this system. And this is very difficult to change eventually. And this is a limit to what you can change after so many years of your a clear example if that of the schools. I, I would put another example, which is a bit clearer in terms of social securities. The pension funds were privatized in Chile. So we don't have a sort of public system giving pensions once you get retired, but you save in your own individual account. This is a model that was exported to everywhere in the world. You have your individual account. And basically, after your working age, you get a pension from whatever you collected in your individual pension account. If this gives you a pension of $100 a month, that's your responsibility. If you had a low salary, well, you should have saved more. Now there's a law to change that. The system is very discredited. People don't want that anymore. And the alternative is to have a collective system where everybody chips in, contribute, and then that collective fund is used to fund the pensions of those that retire. Well, people say no because I have my own fund, because I have saved all my life. Why should I help those that were not responsible enough and did not save enough? Because many people learn, well, if I will have a bad pension, maybe just state that I have a lower salary and give me the rest instead of contributing to my fund, give me a higher salary, or I will not contribute to my fund. I will just use all of that as a salary. And there are people that have been contributing to that and think, well, this is my individual fund. I don't want it to be used to fund everybody else's pension. And that's a huge problem now because people, even those people, know that it will not be enough, their individual fund, to fund a decent pension retirement. But at the same time, they reject a collective sort of alternative because they have this idea of individual freedom and individual sort of assets so ingrained that they don't trust the collective alternative. So, in a way, coming back to your question, this is the way having neoliberalism for such a long time changes the minds of the people. And it's not that they want neoliberalism and they like neoliberalism, they're clear what the limits are and they want to change it. It's just that it is so difficult for them to envisage an alternative because they used to work in in that way. So, as we kind
0: of wrap up, the big idea in your book. least one of the ideas that's central to your thoughts on neoliberalism is that it's not just an economic theory it's not just a series of economic policies but it's a political project but democracy allows us to make choices to be able to decide what kind of economic policies that we want to adopt can we choose neoliberal policies without the political project? Is it possible to separate out just the policies and adopt those within a democracy? Or are the policies of neoliberalism fundamentally undemocratic as well?
1: that's a good question. I think in many countries, the adoption of neoliberalism came out of a conscious decision by voters to give a chance to these ideas of free markets against what they saw as the perils of a state-led sort of a growth model or development model, or how you want to call it. This was there in several instances, not just in developed countries, also in developing countries. In Argentina, for example, in, in the early 1990s, people voted for an alternative that was basically enacting neoliberal policies. And this was a vote against state-led development, hyperinflation, corruption associated with that. And there's new political groups offering you a change, telling you how things can be different, and people voted for that. And eventually, they didn't like it. You know, this led to a series of crises, and they, they, they voted back. And they voted those from before, and for a more status sort of development. So, in a way, what I think is neoliberalism can be established by democratic means it can it is extremely difficult that it will stay if you don't constrain those democratic means because neoliberalism subjects people to such level of anxiety of stress that eventually they want some type of security you know competition is fine for some time but if you have to compete for your whole life and make decisions for your whole life, and you're not secure, basically what you get is, is completely stressed people with huge mental health problems. If you don't know what will happen to you after you end uh, your work life, if you don't know what will happen to you if you get ill and don't have the money to pay for if you don't know any of these things, basically you're super stressed and you don't feel good and you're not happy about your life. And eventually you want to change. You, you want some basic security. And so, what I think happens is that if you leave the democratic process open, and I think this is what has happened in many countries that implemented neoliberalism through democratic means, is that eventually people end up voting against it. And so, even if you can implement neoliberalism by those democratic means, I don't think you can maintain it over time without implementing the type of democratic constraints that we talked about. And I think neoliberals were extremely lucid in understanding this, because already in the 1960s, 1970s, they thought about this, and they were trying to devise diverse ways of protecting neoliberalism from democracy.
0: Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Your book, Neoliberal Resilience, is just such a fascinating examination of developing countries, both in Latin America and Eastern Europe and You tie everything together in a way that's very relevant for today. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks to you, Justin. This has been a a great conversation.
0: If you are listening to the show, please leave a review. It really does help shows like mine stand out. Also, please share the show with colleagues and friends. Because word of mouth goes very long way facebook and twitter are great but really just talk about it there's a full transcript at www.democracyparadox.com thank you for listening